listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I love to worship with you. I love that together we can affirm great biblical truth. We can sing the gospel. Uh, Even there, uh, you notice the plural pronouns there. Grace that is greater than all our sin. We're singing that together. Uh, That is true for me. Uh, I hope that you understand that's true for you. And uh, man, what a joy. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Corinthians chapter 11. We're in a continuing study of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. We know this as 1 Corinthians. Paul has been dealing um, most recently here with the nature and the limits of Christian freedom. Last week, we looked at the distinction between the libertines Uh, those with an underactive conscience, and the legalists, those with an overactive conscience. And again, uh, the important question is still really relevant today. What is Christian freedom, and what are its limits? Should it be limited? Uh, What are we free to do? What are we not free to do? And how do we make that distinction? Fundamentally, how do we live out our Christian faith in the midst of a very broken, sinful world? Uh, How do we do that ethically? How do we do that biblically? Uh, All of those things, very, very important. Andrew David Nacelli in his commentary on 1 Corinthians gives us a really helpful tool to help us with this uh, distinction. He says, first, you should ask the question, does the Bible allow it? And if the answer to that question is no, then don't do it. Uh, Remember, when when God says don't, he means don't suffer. (laughs) You know, and so if the Bible doesn't allow it, don't do it. Uh, But if the answer to that question is yes, then you need to ask another question, and that is this. Does my conscience allow it? If the answer to that question is no, then again, don't do it. Uh, If the answer to that question is yes, uh, then you should ask a series really of three questions in light of God's word here to us. What is the effect on other Christians if I do this thing, if I partake of this, if I go to this place, whatever the case may be, what is the effect on other Christians? And we have said uh, what underlies and what should be remembered as we consider that question is love constrains liberty. Love constrains liberty. A a second question to ask there is what is the effect on non-Christians? Will this in any way compromise the gospel? Uh, the gospel is more important than us exercising our, our rights, our freedom, even in Christ. And then finally, what is the effect on my spiritual life? Spiritual health is more important than uh, our own freedoms. And so our text today, as we move into chapter 11, it addresses the seventh, really, of ten major issues in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The, the Corinthian church was a messed up church. Uh, for sure. Uh, And so there are some challenging texts here. We have uh, been through some choppy waters already, uh, and there are more to come. Paul is really here beginning a new section uh, of his letter that will take us really all the way through chapter 14, concerned primarily with a number of issues connected with public worship specifically. Uh, He will speak to us uh, some more about the Lord's Supper. Uh, Griff will be preaching that text next next week, uh, the remainder really of chapter 11 here. 
Uh, and then uh, Dr. Esri will be preaching the next week, uh, covering spiritual gifts uh, at the start of chapter 12. And so while I'm on mission in Wyoming, I'll not be consumed with sermon preparation. And so I'm really grateful that uh, those two guys are uh, able to preach for us and look forward to, uh, to that. Uh, but he will talk here about Christian unity in the public assembly. It's been one of the issues that really he's already addressed. Uh, there are divisions uh, surrounding different teachers and leaders in the church and so forth. Uh, he will talk, of course, about the use of spiritual gifts. He will talk about order in public worship. And then here at the beginning of this new section, verses 2 through 16 of chapter 11, Paul seeks to bring about um, reformation, we might say, in the worship uh, culture of the Corinthian congregation, starting with the question of the way women and men are to relate to... to, to, to. And before we look at the text together, I, I feel compelled to tell you that from my perspective, at least, this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret, and to, to interpret well, and to preach. Now, in many ways, I feel inadequate as I stand here this morning. Uh, Paul's argument is complicated. Uh, there are several expressions, the precise meaning of which uh, are disputed even by the best of scholars. Uh, and, and that's not to mention that this is just culturally challenging teaching, what this passage has to communicate to us. And so once we've even dealt with the intricacies of the text uh, in what we preachers call exegesis and all of those kind of things, the message itself is just fairly challenging. Uh, it's not well-received, particularly in the culture in which we live. Uh, and so what you're going to hear this morning reflects my best efforts uh, to grapple prayerfully with this passage, this text, to try and weigh the various interpretive options and to bring some clarity uh, as we together come under the authority of the Word of God. And so uh, I'm not ashamed to acknowledge that on some of the details here, I, I may be wrong. Uh, we want to make certain that we see the main things and we see the plain things uh, that sometimes get lost in difficult passages like this. I don't want us to get sidetracked because there are a number of places that we could really get snarled up with what, what Paul is teaching here. Uh, and so it, it is critically important to us. Um, you can at first glance at this and some people would say, oh, that's that section of scripture that talks about uh, hats and haircuts. <laughs> Uh, well, really, this section is about much more than that, I can assure you. Uh, and if you just do a quick glance over these next few verses, you would say, well, that's some pretty outdated stuff, especially in light of the world in which we live today. I mean, we're enlightened people, right? I mean, we've come a long way since this. So what is this guy trying to say? Well, one of the things that we need to understand is there is no way possible in about a 30-minute message give or take a tad, okay, um, that we're going to cover everything in great detail that we find in this text, okay? But I do want us to leave here today with, uh, with some clarity, certainly, uh, and with a better understanding of what Paul is writing, of course, initially um, to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth, and then certainly to us as well. And so let's look at verses 2 through 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, and certainly the Corinthians knew what it was to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Some of you will recognize the name uh, of um, an Australian, uh, Germaine Greer. Germaine Greer is a well-known feminist. Uh, now I think she's in her early 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, one of the more significant voices of a radical feminist agenda over the last hundred years. Well, several years ago, Germaine Greer was invited to speak at Cardiff University in Wales uh, until she became the target uh, of a student revolt. They gathered some 2,000 signatures calling for the cancellation of this event. And the reason was because, as a feminist even, Germaine Greer believes that post-operative transgendered men are not in fact women. That surgery can't make women into men or men into women. So from her point of view, as a committed feminist, transgenderism is a massive threat. And she said so. And for saying so, she was no platformed. That's kind of a new concept to some of us. Maybe you've heard it uh, described as cancel culture. Uh, they had to cancel the event because of the outcry against her. Now, I, I bring up that point uh, because it points out the very extraordinary place to which we've come in Western culture, particularly. Germaine Greer would be considered by many one of the architects of the sexual revolution. Uh, if you study her writing and you study her influence in this regard, you will find that her aggressive feminism takes no prisoners. Uh, it has forced society to rethink and reevaluate categories about gender identity and the role of sexuality, and yet here she is, dissenting from the iteration of the very sexual revolution that she herself helped to initiate. It's gone too far, even for so radical a voice as hers. But of course, Greer, we would say, is only echoing what the Bible has been saying all along, although I'm sure that that would bring her great distress. <laughs> Men and women, it turns out, check this out, big new truth coming for you today, we are fundamentally different. <laughs> We're just different. Who knew? 
We are necessarily and essentially different by God's good design. And you go back to some of the earliest pages of Scripture, and it makes it clear. God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. And so while at first glance this section of Scripture may look uh, to be uh, from another planet somewhere, another time, another place, outdated and all those things, it is really very clearly appropriate and applicable to the world in which we live. When we fail to understand God's perfect design and we fail to live that out, chaos is the result. The first thing I want us to see this morning as we look at this text is the problem that Paul addresses. The problem that Paul addresses. This is in verses 4 through 6 particularly is where we find some language that is maybe a little foreign to us. And while I understand that there are groups and even maybe denominations uh, that take this a section of Scripture in sort of a prescriptive way. And they would say that well, we need to follow this. And so maybe if you have Mennonite friends, for example, uh, you will see ladies with head coverings. Rings, rings, rings. Uh, even the United Pentecostal Church believes it's inappropriate for women to cut their hair and, and those kind of things. And some of that comes from, from this text. This is one of those passages uh, where it is vitally important that we understand the historical cultural context. Really, we should always study Scripture in that way. We always have to ask ourselves, who wrote it, to whom was it originally written, and what was the purpose? Okay, and so we want to, we want to see that today. We want to unpack that a little bit or, or sh shed some light on that. What did covering one's head communicate in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day? There's a historian, a New Testament scholar by the name of Bruce Winter, who I believe gives us some helpful insight here. Uh, he states it this way, during pagan religious ceremonies, priests or uh, Roman men with high social status, they pulled their togas over their heads when they led by praying or, or sacrificing. If socially elite men in the Corinthian church covered their head during corporate worship, they would be highlighting their social status instead of highlighting Christ, the church's head. And in doing that, they might even exclude people of lower status in corporate worship. And so Paul challenges here Christian men not to adopt what we would consider a, a syncretistic custom. With that, he says this, a woman's covering her head socially indicated that she was married. A head covering symbolized a married woman's modesty and chastity and submission uh, to her husband. This was one way in which a wife honored her husband. So there was a, a sort of new kind of wife was emerging at this time in the Roman world, one who rebelled against the cultural norms that uh, would be horrific to us in many respects. I hope it would be to us. This culture allowed husbands, but not wives, to be sexually promiscuous. I mean, some in our culture would even say it maybe this way, oh, boys will be boys. Well, that's not acceptable. And so one way in which these wives, these, you know, these wives who had kind of discovered this newfound freedom, so to speak, would flaunt that freedom was by removing her veil, especially during a time of corporate worship. And so this would contentiously identify her with other promiscuous women. 
Now, the problem that Paul is addressing is that the Corinthian Christians could wear or not wear head coverings in a way that defiantly pushed against God's beautiful design for husbands and wives, for men and women. And the custom then was that men did not cover their heads in public worship, whereas women did. Uncovered, loose hair was considered lewd and inappropriate. The high society mistresses of uh, Corinthian elite society, for example, were among the few women who normally wore their hair down with no kind of covering on their head. And so in that culture, in that day, in that time, long, loose hair without a covering was considered quite inappropriate, especially in the church. Adulteresses, on the other hand, as part of their punishment, had their heads shaved as a sign of shame. And so Paul is essentially saying here that just as it would be wrong for a man to cover his head when in worship, so it was also equally wrong in those days for a woman to refuse to cover her head. It signaled a rebellious spirit that was open to shameful misunderstanding. Long, loose hair like that was as shameful, Paul is saying, as having one's head shaved for infidelity. So it's kind of like he's saying, well, if you're going to have this rebellious spirit, you might as well just go ahead and shave your head and identify with those who are promiscuous. And so a passage which may at first appear to be uh, obscure, 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 relevant, uh, it speaks with extraordinary relevance at a time when we badly need to get clear what the Bible has to say about gender and human relationships, about what is a man and a woman and how are they to relate to one another and to conduct themselves in the church and in the world. So that's the first thing that I want us to see, the problem at Corinth that Paul is addressing. Now I want to pause for just a moment and say this. Some of you have been in and around the church or church culture enough that it's likely uh, you have heard some teaching uh, where texts like this, and I can think of some other places, Galatians 5, for example, and 1 Peter, and uh, some other places uh, where you have heard uh, the text uh, misinterpreted, misapplied, and in, in some really bad cases, weaponized to denigrate uh, and dishonor and push women down. If that's been your experience, I want to apologize to you if somehow I can do that. That is not what God is saying here. God is not saying through His Word, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, that women have in any way, shape, or form lesser value, lesser dignity, lesser worth, any of those things. I mean, you look at the, the, the creative genius of Almighty Sovereign God. Men, women, uh, young, old, regardless of the color of your skin, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background, all of those things have, have equal worth and value. Imago Dei, created in the image of God. And so if anybody's ever appealed to a text like this to kind of put you in your place... They've essentially weaponized the Word of God. We don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We do want to come away today with a clear understanding of Scripture. What is God saying to us by His Holy Spirit in this text? I want you to notice, uh, number two today, the praise that Paul gives. Okay, You'll notice if we back up to verse number two where we started, 
Um, we, we see this word tradition. He's commending them, which if you're familiar with the, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians here, Paul has not had a whole lot to commend the people of Corinth for. I mean, this isn't a feel-good kind of letter, okay? I mean, it's not like, oh, y'all are doing great. I mean, there's not a lot of that in this text. And so in, in verse number two, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, we got to pause for a moment and think about that word tradition for a moment. We, we normally use the word tradition to mean something like habitual behaviors that we pass on from one generation to the next. And maybe we think about Thanksgiving traditions or Christmas traditions, uh, perhaps a part of your family customs that you pass on from one generation to the next. And that's, that's not what Paul means here by tradition. In Paul's writing, generally, and here particularly, tradition has to do with a body of teaching, uh, of truth communicated to the church and preserved by them, either face-to-face, -face, verbally, as Paul has preached to them, as he's planting churches, as he's taught them, and, uh, or as he wrote to them in his letters now recorded for us in the New Testament. Much of our New Testament is uh, are letters from the Apostle Paul to churches or uh, different individuals. So I think of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, where Paul urges there the Thessalonians to stand fast, hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so you do not find here a, 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 a kind of dead traditionalism that is always looking back to the glory days, for example. And it's in that context that you will often hear things like, we don't know why, but that's just the way it's always been done. So we have to preserve that. It, it may be extra biblical. It may be even in some cases anti-biblical, but, but that's just the way we've always done it. So that's what we're going to continue to do. And we have to preserve that somehow. We have to cling to that. Now, they would even go as far, maybe not saying this, but essentially saying it's just like written in the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so, world without end, amen and amen, right? Traditions, though, are like fences. And I'm not anti-tradition. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful traditions that I think are, are very, very important for us. But traditions, very often, and we need to ask ourselves why it's there and what it's doing before we start monkeying around with it. That's not the kind of tradition, though, that Paul is talking about here at all. The tradition that he has in mind is this body of instruction that they have heard and maintained from the apostle himself. And he is communicating to them uh, and commending them for holding fast to that. Now, again, the Corinthian church was a mess in many respects. And yet here he is right in the middle of it all, commending them for holding fast to the, to the traditions. So, when you see that it's, you see that, you kind of like go, well, what is Paul really doing here? Um, you, you can, it's almost like Paul is, in a, in a sense, he's like buttering them up a little bit, okay? Um, you ever had somebody that was just like syrupy nice to you, even to the point that you're like, okay, what do you want? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, that's a little bit of what you see here, maybe. Uh, part of what he's doing by commending them is ensuring that they are being enlisted, you might say here. He's wanting to, to get a listening, a hearing from them. He's recruiting them to continue maintaining a biblical, or in this case, apostolic tradition, because he's about to deliver them to uh, uh, some, some corrective uh, teaching. 
new teaching that they needed to hear that he knows is going to be difficult for them. And, and honestly, perhaps even difficult for some of us to embrace. This isn't popular stuff, particularly in our culture. So I want us to see number three today, the principle that Paul teaches. So here it is, after praising them, he gives them his teaching principle, his fundamental principle in response to the problem in light of which he says everything else that he says in this passage. So again, verse number three, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And that last phrase... Verse number three, where Paul says, the head of Christ is God. That should give us pause. The head of Christ is God. What is he teaching us? He doesn't mean here that, that, that God the Father is superior or more ultimate or more essentially divine or more authoritative even than God the Son. Biblical doctrine on this point informs us that there are three persons in the Godhead. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we believe those three are one, the same in substance, the same uh, equal in power, equal in glory. And Paul is not denying that at all when he says the head of Christ is God. But we do need to look a little further into that statement. And what we see there is this, 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 this ship that has a bearing upon what he's teaching here. What he is saying is that within the fellowship of the Trinity, each of the three persons voluntarily adopt a role and a relationship with respect to one another when it comes to divine interactions between God and his creatures. The Father, God the Father, sends God the Son. God the Son, in that case, submits to God the Father. The Son is not subordinate to the Father, essentially or eternally, and yet for us and for our salvation, He took on flesh. He submitted His human will to the divine will. The writer of Hebrews tells us, learning obedience by the things that He suffered. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him, meaning God the Father, who sent me. Here is the Son, willingly submitting to God the Father. John chapter 8, verse 22, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. John chapter 12, verses 49 and 50, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Maybe as you hear those texts, you're thinking even of the prayer of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as He is facing the cross. Matthew in his gospel records it for us this way, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here's Jesus 
God the Son, God in the flesh, in pursuit of the eternal plan and purpose of God to secure salvation for sinners like you and me, submitting to the Father, keeping the Father's commandments. The head of Christ is God. That's what Paul is saying here. The center of God's dealing with His creatures in love stands this pattern of Trinitarian headship and submission, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Difficult for us to wrap our brains around for sure. But it's a beautiful thing. And then I want you to notice the the very first phrase in verse number 3 where Paul says, the head of every man is Christ. Now the word that he uses there for man is not the word for male. Specifically, it's the word that's often translated as a person or, or people. The head of every person is Christ. All people, just as Jesus submits to the Father in the economy of of God and the Trinity. So in the Christian life, the head of every person is Christ, and we are to submit to Him. Christ is our Master. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And what He says has the force of royal decree, as it were. His Word binds our consciences, which means, by the way, that we're not free here to take some scissors or an exacto knife and chop up 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to cut out the bits that we maybe don't like. Jesus Christ is speaking by His Word, and His Word binds our consciences. We are to submit to King Jesus as Lord in pursuit of our redemption. Uh, and, and, and we see that. And so uh, we who are called to imitate Christ must in turn submit to Christ who submits to God the Father. And so far so good, I hope, right? Let's talk about this concept of servant leadership then. Because if you look at the middle of verse number 3, this is fundamentally where the rub comes in. Especially culturally. And the head of the wife is her husband. (laughs) What an extraordinarily offensive thing for Paul, 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 Paul. Culturally, isn't isn't that the case in many respects? You want to start a social media storm? Then just tweet that out this afternoon. It is nevertheless the clear teaching of Scripture concerning the relationship of men and women in the family and in the church. Ephesians 5.22. We, we, we use what's called the comparative mention principle of hermeneutics, and so we interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. And so we see the same language in Paul's writing just Three letters later in our, our Bibles here, in, uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is, here's the same language, the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is itself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then First Peter chapter 3, verse number 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. In God's design for marriage and in His design for the church, men are called, listen carefully, gentlemen, called to servant leadership. That's very important that you understand. Mark the language carefully. Servant leadership, not dictatorial dominion, not misogyny, uh, not uh, the modern day iteration and version of me, man, you, woman, make me sandwich. Okay, that's that's not what God's word teaches us. Not at all. Okay, servant leadership. 
I think one of the, one of the ways that we get mixed up in some of this teaching uh, is that we, we men especially, we tend to be, I, I, I don't know too many men who don't on some level or another struggle with pride. Okay, I certainly do. Um, you know, we, we look at texts like this sometimes and we want to, to focus all the attention, you know, to shine on it the spotlight of authority. Authority. I can remember a number of years ago, I was a young adult and I was given a promotion at the job where I was working at the time. I was working in a warehouse setting and um, that made me basically a supervisor over some men who were older than I, uh, who in some cases had more experience than I and all those things. And, and it didn't set well with some of those people. Now, do you suppose that it would have worked and they would have um, submitted essentially to my authority if I maintained a posture of being large and in charge? If every time I had an opportunity and I pulled together a team meeting, I said, oh, by the way, I'm the boss. Remember that little saying on the playground years ago? I'm the boss, applesauce, understand, rubber band, don't get wise, bubble eyes, or I'll knock you down to peanut size. What a goofy little saying, but that's kind of how some people act. You give them a little bit of authority, and man, it's just like... And no, no, what I wanted to do in those meetings, I didn't always do it well, but I wanted to give them this thought of this idea that, man, you can really help me and I can learn from some of you things that I don't yet know. And so I tried as best I could to maintain a position of, of humility and serving. And so many times with texts like this, we like to spend all of our time shining on it, this spotlight of authority, when really we should be spending more time focusing on it, the spotlight of responsibility. Because what I learned in that promotion, even in the warehouse, was along with more authority comes more what? Responsibility. If you've ever worked in a retail world and you, you are called what's called a key holder many times, what does that mean? Or do you get to walk around dangling the keys to everybody who is not a key holder? No, that means you have an added measure, measure, measure. We men, as the head of our homes, our families will be held chiefly responsible for how we lead our families, how we lead our wives. And we're to do that as, as servant leaders. The picture that we have in Scripture, uh, uh, our marriages are to reflect Christ in the church. What, what did Christ do for the church? He laid down his life for the church. And so it's in that same vein, it's, it's in that same, that, that same uh, teaching, that same emphasis that we are to lovingly serve our families, our wives, lead them well. And so then we see this idea of interdependence. If you look down at verses 11 through 13, you'll see that Paul seems to almost anticipate the possibility, at least, that some of the men at Corinth would abuse his teaching precisely along those lines. So he balances what he says very carefully. He reminds us that in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So the pattern of, of headship submission is real, but that does not deny or negate our interdependence. Our essential equality and dignity as men and women. Men are to lead. 
Yes, but the leadership they exercise is to be Christ-like, self-giving, servant leadership. Not what we often see in the world today. The abuse of some form of power, as it were. It's the pattern that Paul is teaching us here of Christ-likeness. It is a gospel pattern. The submission of God the Son, Jesus Christ to God the Father, the path by which He secured our salvation. He became, according to, to Philippians, obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And so we see this pattern modeled for us in the way that Christ, in the gospel, even submits to God the Father. And I just want to pause for a moment and, and hopefully add some, some clarity for you to our, our context as a body of believers. And while I recognize that there are people in the room today who are not members of First Baptist Church Van Alstine, maybe you're a guest today and we welcome you. Uh, maybe some of you have been faithfully attending for a while and maybe you're prayerfully considering membership here at First Baptist Church. And and so th th there's some words that you will sometimes hear in the context of these things in our current culture that maybe are confusing to you. And so uh, you will hear words like complementarian. Um, and so if, if I had to describe us uh, from a leadership perspective, and I think in this I, I speak uh, for our elders, our other pastors, um, I'm, I'm not the dictator here, okay? I'm not the man, okay? While I may be uh, first among equals, uh, th there's agreement in this area. We would be what, uh, what many would describe as soft complementarians, okay? And what that means is um, we do not have a problem with a lady being on the platform, for example. There are some who hold to what's called what we would call hard complementarianism, which would not allow a woman to ever even be on the platform. It would not allow a woman to pray publicly, would not allow a woman to serve on even administrative type committees or ministry teams or things of that nature. And maybe that's kind of the, the, the cultural context in which some of you grew up, where it was the message was pretty much to the ladies, hey, you, you can deal with the two K's, the kids in the kitchen. Okay, well, we don't believe that that's what Scripture teaches here. Okay, but I also want to be clear in that it is our belief that the office of elder, pastor, overseer, those words essentially um, all interchangeable in Scripture. Okay, I won't go into all the details of that. That office and the rules and the rules and the rules are reserved for men. Okay, so we are complementarian, but we would consider ourselves soft complementarian in that regard. And I won't belabor that point. I, I do want to add uh, an extra measure of clarity as it relates to me and, and even my relationship with my wife. Okay. Um, Christy and I will celebrate uh, later this month, 32 years of marriage. Okay. And uh, I, I can't even begin to put into words uh, what uh, our relationship, what she means to me. So here's the thing. Christy would never want to be considered your pastor, okay? Uh, if I were to print a business card for her that said Christy Lovely co-pastor or anything like that, or she were to see some, you know, thing, Mike and Christy Lovely pastors at for that, that, that is not, I don't think, babe, right? Am I, no, no, she's not interested in that. However, let me say this. Um, I could never put into words how vitally important her ministry is to your pastor. 
and the ways and the depths that God in his good graces has used her and her walk with the Lord and her giftedness and her passions and her heart to shape me as a man and as a pastor. I would even go so far as to say my role as your pastor, one of your pastors, would not be possible or what it is without her. Okay, I, I hope that that adds some clarity here. And I will just simply say that, and some of you would, I think, give testimony to this. My wife has shepherded some of you in ways that I never could. In ways that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not equipped to. And so I hope that that helps you maybe flesh out some of this just a little bit, okay? Uh, and again, we're not going to, in these few moments, going to be able to cover all of that. We very quickly are going to wrap this up, okay? I want you to see number four, the pictures that Paul uses. So he reinforces his teaching uh, with four maybe further arguments to illustrate and drive home this pattern. Let me just list them for you, and then, then we will be done. There is the order of creation, you see that in verses 7 through 10. It speaks about uh, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God. Woman, the glory of man. Man was not made uh, from woman, but woman from man. Uh, Paul is talking about there the creation story. It's a matter of simple historical and scriptural record. Obviously, Adam was created first as God's image for God's glory. Woman was created from Adam to be a helper to him and was his, his glory, you might say, his better half. Uh, his, his glory was not in himself. Uh, the glory of man is not to be looked for in the man, but in his complement in the woman. And so there's where you get that, that language of complementarian, called alongside uh, all of those things, never in a subservient, diminished a uh, doormat sort of role. That is not, not the idea. And then he talks about the angels. Verse number 10, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now let me say straight up here that I am not sure what that means, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm just not. If you think you know or you are really dogmatic, then um, you are very likely wrong as well. As a preacher, I find it reassuring that there are even places where the Apostle Paul can't be understood, okay? Um, and and I've, I've looked at various sources. I've looked at, at scholars and commentators that I've grown to respect and all those things. And, and few, if any of them, are really certain. He conceives of the angels present with the people of God when we gather like this on the Lord's day. It's a beautiful thought. You can't see them, but perhaps there are angels all around us joining us as we adore the Lamb, as we have this morning, who redeemed us. And for the angels, of course, worship is the joyous submission of their very selves to the Lordship of the living God who made them and before whose presence they sing constant praises. So perhaps what Paul is saying here. There are angels looking on in wonder at the church who are beneficiaries of blessing. They can't really know. We are the objects of redeeming love. Christ died for us, not for them. We have every reason for joy and to submit to, to the Lordship of Christ in our lives. So as the angels likewise submit to the Lordship of God. And so at Corinth, the, the issue here was that some women were not submitting, but were rebelling. 
It was shocking. It was unseemly. It was out of place. And if we could take a modern day example to kind of what was happening here, if you saw me going into a particular establishment and before I went in there, I removed my wedding ring and put it in my, my pocket, some of you would go, what is that? Can there be any reason why he would not want to honor his wife with the ring that she gave him on their wedding day? I know there are safety reasons that sometimes we might remove a ring or whatever and all that, and I realize the symbolism of it and so forth, but that's one of the things that you see even in movies and, and all those sorts of things. If they want to indicate that an individual is about to be unfaithful to their spouse, one of the things that they do to depict that is what? They remove the ring, right? I, I don't want there to be any perception here that I'm taken or that I'm honoring my spouse in any way. And so that's kind of like what I believe is happening here at Corinth with some of these ladies particularly. And then he talks about nature. And by nature, he means universally accepted norms and customs. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Uh, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. And so a woman's longer hair is a clue, Paul is saying, of basic difference. Men and women are not interchangeable. Not to pretend to be or to dress as though they were, uh, express and embrace and celebrate those differences in a way that honors God and respects the pattern of creation that God has given. And then you have the practice of the apostolic church. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The point is the Corinthians were kind of innovating here. They were welcoming uh, the, the ways of the world into the fellowship of believers. Paul tells us all to adhere to this pattern of, of leadership, this, this God-ordained design, um, and, and it should be expressed in particular ways. And so in our way of thinking, innovation is always considered a good thing. But when it comes to biblical truth or to patterns of church life, it is decidedly not a good thing. And that's where today in our culture... You hear things like, oh, that's outdated. We are more enlightened than that. Okay, that's a form of theological innovation. We know better today in 2021 than God has known for all of eternity. Okay, how prideful. Where does all of this leave us? Here, I think, is the takeaway as we close this morning. At a time when the pressure to distinctions is growing and growing, and at a time when the suggestion that, uh, that, that women ought to submit to the servant leadership of their husbands and, and those sorts of things, a Christian wife uh, should, uh, should maintain this, this position in God's order and so forth. Um, we're seeing all of those things kind of turned on their head. It mirrors the gospel pattern here again. That's what we see. But when we think we know better, we do not actually improve on God's design at all. This is God's perfect design. God's perfect design. And we ruin it, taking what is already beautiful and making it into an ugly expression of our rebellious hearts many times. But as we submit to God in Christ, as we submit together, 
brothers and sisters in Christ to the Word of God. As we build biblically ordered homes and a biblically ordered church, we are bearing a profound witness to the beauty and the goodness of God's plan and God's design in a society where fragmentation and disharmony is increasingly the norm. Is it easy? No. Is it sometimes offensive to our pride? Sure. But it is God's way. It is our calling. And those who seek to live in light of it find that it is also the way of joy and peace. And so may the Lord help us to see and value and be captivated by what God has done for us as men and women in Jesus Christ. Submit to His Lordship in our lives, including, including, God's perfect design for both the home and the church. So if you join me in bowing your heads this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we readily acknowledge today that this, um, at least culturally, is not an easy thing. And Lord, in our own brokenness and sinfulness and pride, we often feel that we know better than you do. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for those times, for the ways in which we have misinterpreted, misapplied, misused your word. Particularly here to make women feel lesser than. Lord, it's my prayer that you would raise up godly men and husbands and fathers who would exhibit Christ-like servant leadership in their homes, in their families. That within the context of your church here known as First Baptist Church Van Alstine, that we would find that same godly, Christ-centered servant leadership. Lord, it's our prayer that as we live out these things, as we live out your perfect design and plan for us as men and women that we would in every way honor and glorify your perfect design for us how we relate to one another Lord give us an extra measure of grace where it's needed to walk with you in a way that best reflects your glory and the work that you are doing and your redemptive purpose and plan for this world. Lord, we thank you and we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. 
For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.